Well, normally on uh, Father's Day every year, we do um, a one for the men. But I'm giving the guys a break this year because I didn't do a one for the women on Mother's Day because I wasn't here. So we'll uh, get back to those next year. Today, we're, we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're beginning to look at the Beatitudes. And my original intent this morning was to look at the first two Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. But I'm going to say that because of the Holy Spirit and not my long-windedness, uh, we're only going to cover one this morning. That's what happened as of yesterday. So we are going to look at just the first Beatitude today. So far, we have looked at what the Sermon on the Mount is. We looked at the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is a king that is giving and describing what his kingdom would be like. We looked at the proper context of the Sermon on the Mount in the larger Gospel of Matthew as well within the sermon itself. And we also considered some guiding principles for reading it. And so there's just a couple of things that I want you to remember this morning as we dig into the first beatitude. What I want you to remember is that the Sermon on the Mount is meaningful, the order of it is meaningful, and it is intentional. Jesus' teachings begin with the Beatitudes, which are a declaration of blessing based on the characteristics that Jesus describes in those first 10 verses. And the way that the Beatitudes are stated, they follow this kind of flow of cause and effect. If you are this, then you will receive this. If you are this, then you will receive this blessing or be blessed in this way. But when we read it, we must be careful not to think that the Beatitudes describe something that we can do on our own to a satisfactory level before our God and before our Father. We must understand that it is only through the Spirit of God that we are enabled to live rightly in His kingdom. We cannot enter the kingdom by our own power. We cannot live rightly in this kingdom by our own power. Apart from the Spirit of God, all that we offer, Scripture says, is filthy rags. And we're going to touch on more of that when we talk about the first beatitude this morning. What these beatitudes describe is they describe the character of a Christian born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. They are characteristics given and grown by the Spirit of God. This is why Christ put them first. This is why the Beatitudes come first in his sermon before anything else, so that we would understand everything else that follows is not just a prescription for right living that any man or any woman can achieve, but a calling that Jesus Christ expects his people to live by upon being conformed to the character that is described in the Beatitudes. And as I said before, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount can only make sense and can only be lived out when an individual has been conformed to the Christian character described here in the Beatitudes by the power of the Spirit. It is so imperative that we remember the Sermon on the Mount is for followers of Christ and the Beatitudes prove that. When Jesus declares, blessed are those who... He is declaring these are the ones who are favored by God. 
These are the ones who are blessed by my Father. And God's favor, God's blessing, as described by Jesus here, the type of blessing that he declares comes through him and him alone. And so we must have that set in our hearts first. We must have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We must have recognized his work on the cross, his all-sufficient work for you and I to free us of the bonds of sin. We must have recognized that and trusted in that work that he did. And so now this morning, let's begin to pour over Jesus' words and allow them to have their effect on us who are being conformed into the image of Christ, those of us who should be marked by the character that Jesus describes in these Beatitudes. The first Beatitude in Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we previously pointed out in week one of this series that Matthew, in his gospel, he is concerned with showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's focus is to show his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised King. And these first two Beatitudes that we're going to look at this week and next week, they fit with Matthew's focus that Jesus is the fulfillment of the coming Messiah. Because the first two Beatitudes, Jesus is pointing us back to Isaiah chapter 61. And he is mirroring what is contained in Isaiah's messianic prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 3, it contains a messianic blessing that the Messiah would usher in upon his people. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not the only time that Jesus speaks from this particular prophecy. Luke records in chapter 4 of his gospel that Jesus read the same verses when he went to the synagogue at the start of his public ministry after being tempted in the wilderness. He read the same scroll from Isaiah 61 to show what kind of ministry he would have, to show that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And so as, you, as I read it, see if you can hear today's beatitude as well as next week's beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61 prophesies, says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's talking about the poor in spirit there. He says, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open prisons. And when he talks about liberty and opening of prisons, what he's referring to is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is ushering in that stamps out the kingdom of darkness that all of humanity is enslaved by and must be set free from. We see the first beatitude in there, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
spirit for they or for the kingdom of heaven is theirs and then he continues and he says to comfort all who mourn to give them a headdress instead of ashes gladness instead of mourning we see the second beatitude in there blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted jesus in the first two beatitudes is declaring he is the messiah he is the king the kingdom is here which isaiah has described it has come and jesus is telling us this is how you enter that kingdom this is how you enter the kingdom of heaven be poor in spirit and mourn blessed are the poor in spirit it's fitting that Jesus starts here. It's fitting that Jesus starts with this one. To be poor in spirit is the fundamental start point. To be poor in spirit is the fundamental state of being that someone must be in before they may enter the kingdom of heaven. In a sense, being poor in spirit comes before all of the other beatitudes that are listed after it. What is implicit in Jesus' declaration of blessing is that if you are not poor in spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, you will not have all of the other things added unto you that are a part of that kingdom. And so in a sense, the first beatitude must come before all of the other ones. You know, we all know what it means to be poor. It means to be destitute. It means to be impoverished. It means to have nothing. And while we may not, or some of us may, but most of us I don't think know what it means to be materially poor, if you're a follower of Christ, whether you realize it or not, you know what it means from a spiritual perspective. Before we touch on that, though, I want to speak first to the material part of it. I want to touch briefly on that because contrary to what some believe, when Jesus speaks of being poor here, he is not referring to material poverty. Some people will take the parallel passage that's found in Luke 6.20 where Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And they will conclude that Jesus is talking about material poverty. While Jesus teaches in other places that it is easier for the poor to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for the rich, it is misguided to think that he is making monetary and material poverty a requirement for someone to enter his kingdom. It is through faith alone that we come to Christ and his kingdom, and faith comes through spiritual poverty, not material poverty. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is someone who is poor in spirit marked by? It is a confession of our utter dependence on God. It is realizing that you can offer nothing to God, but instead cry out for mercy from God. It describes an emptying that happens in our inner being when we come to the realization that we are utterly destitute. When all of the walls of deceit that we have built up of what we think matters come crumbling down and we realize the things that we thought about ourselves, the things that we trusted in, the things that we thought mattered so much to us when we thought this world was all that there was is actually meaningless and are worth less than nothing. 
It is coming face to face with God and feeling rightly bankrupt, knowing that we owe a great debt and our account is completely empty. It is the utter and deep and convicting recognition that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer to the only one whom we have to offer everything. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. It is not about self-deprecation. It is not a false sense of humility. If it is, then you've got it wrong and you see God wrong. It is a fitting response from a genuine heart that rightly reflects just how low we are in comparison to the Almighty God. That's what being poor in spirit is. You know, the first time we experience this is different for every single one of us who are followers of Jesus. For me, it came through having to stare in the face of my own moral bankruptcy. When the moral code that I believed that I lived by, the moral standards that I had set for myself and always thought that I would live by them came crumbling down as I committed adultery with another man's wife. Betraying the institute of marriage that I had always believed so deeply in. And it was because I had built my moral foundations on sand, not on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And for the first time, I realized I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. What was it for you? What was that thing that brought you low and made you realize that you are poor in spirit? That you cannot come before God and offer him anything? What was it? You see, there's an emptying that has to happen with the gospel before we can be filled. There is a lowering that has to occur in our hearts before a raising up can happen. There must be a conviction before there can be conversion. This is what being poor in spirit is. It is a complete absence of pride. It is a complete absence of self-assurance. It is a complete absence of self-reliance as we come to know that we are nothing before this great king whom rules over everything. Isaiah 66, 2, the Lord declares, all of these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble. He who is contrite in spirit. And trembles at my word. The Lord will look to those who are poor in spirit. And so let's look at some examples in God's word. To see what it means to be poor in spirit so we can see it more clearly and strive for it in our own lives through the power of the spirit we can look to king david 
in Psalm 51, as King David laments over his own sinful heart in Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. David recognizes his sin. David recognizes his utter poverty before the Lord, and he pleads to God, Have mercy on me. And when he pleads to God, he doesn't plead based on his merit. He pleads based on God's merit. He says, have mercy on me according to your love, O God. He is not pleading for mercy based on what he has to offer. He's pleading for mercy based on God's love, based on who the Lord is. Or we can look to David's response to the Lord, the Lord's covenant to him, as the Lord recounts all of the things that he has done in David's life and all of the promises that David can look to in his future and far beyond his own life. In 2 Samuel 7, 18, David says, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Or we can look to Isaiah when he sees the vision of the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, and his response is, Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me, Lord, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or we can look to the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul lists all of the things that he could have confidence in in the flesh. In Philippians 3, verse 3 to 9, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is giving us a list here, saying these are all the things that I could have confidence in. And then he says, but... But whatever gain I had, whatever hope I would have in those things, in those fleshly things, I count them as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Suffer the loss of all things so that I may gain one thing, Jesus Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know, what Paul describes here is in stark contrast to the spirit of the world that we live in. The beatitude of the world would say, blessed are those who are self-confident and self-reliant, for they will get everything they want. The world celebrates confidence in the flesh, 
In the world's mind, it is utter foolishness not to have confidence in yourself. And the world would list positively the things that look very similar to what Paul lists as complete rubbish. The world would say, have confidence in where you're born. Have confidence in your family, your work, your money, your home, your social status, your economic status. Have confidence in you, in what you are, in what you have to offer. I have a helper. Confidence is, in self is seen on a more corporate scale in the world. And the fact that humans always believe that we can fix the world problems ourselves. So much faith is put in human institutions, in education systems, in politics. We think if we can just get the right combination of people in charge, we can fix the world's problems. This is misplaced reliance in ourselves. The world's confidence is in self and Christianity is not welcomed by those of the world because it destroys any confidence in self by teaching that we have nothing to be confident in. In fact, as we will look at next week, when we consider ourselves, the right response is to mourn, not celebrate. But my aim is not to pick on the world because the world is following what it knows. And it will know nothing else unless something is demonstrated that it can see. And it's up to those in Christ to demonstrate what it is to be poor in spirit. And so can we say that we are? Certainly we can say that we know what it is to be poor in spirit for we're, if we are in Christ, we have experienced it. We've experienced the sense of poverty required to ask Jesus Christ to save us. But do we continually walk in the awareness of our spiritual poverty apart from Christ? Do we recognize that without him, we have nothing? Do we have a continual sense of our own lowliness? Are we walking in step with the Spirit whom produces such lowliness of character? You know, we have a habit in the church of celebrating the wrong things sometimes. When what is celebrated most clearly in God's Word is humility, lowliness, meekness, being poor in spirit give you just one example. It's interesting to me when I read older commentaries from the 1900s, even into the 1800s, and the commentators lament the loss of a sense of spiritual poverty in the church. In his commentary, Martin Lloyd-Jones laments over the foolish talk of the church of his day regarding the elevation of the personality of pastors. And I can't help but think how little things have changed in our own day. The church in our day often embraces an equivalent to that. We've even coined a silly little term for it, celebrity pastor. 
And when I say that, I don't mean those who have been given influence by God amongst the larger body of Christ because of their faithfulness. I mean pastors who are celebrated for their personality, who are celebrated for their charm and their wit and their looks and their many other worldly attributes rather than the godliness of their teaching. Men who are elevated and favored because of the skills or the looks that they were born with. I don't know how Christ's church can't see a celebrity pastor is an antithesis of being poor in spirit. A pastor is to be honored, yes. A pastor is to be held in regard, but he is not to be elevated. He is not to be favored because of his natural abilities or catchy personality. That's what the world celebrates, not the church. Pastors should be some of the lowliest among the flock, not lacking in confidence, but understanding that we will be judged harsher as teachers. That should cause us to fall on our knees before the Lord, to plead for mercy, knowing that he has called us to something that we can never do on our own. That makes you lowly. You know, Jesus ends the first beatitude with a blessing, as he does all the other ones. He says, the blessing for those who are poor in spirit is that they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, your chains, they will be broken. You who are a captive, you will be set free. You will receive a new birth into the kingdom. Because those who recognize their lowliness, they plead in faith for the Lord to raise them up again. As new creations. And what we get to enjoy as those in Christ is the kingdom of heaven. And while the full blessedness of this reality comes at the full consummation of the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns, we share in the blessings of this kingdom now so far as this kingdom has